Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week we're going to speak with Jeff Hauser. He's the director of the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Um, we're going to talk to Jeff about Biden's early cabinet picks, some other developments, um, how the House can put a lasso on Trump in his final 47, 48 days in office, this 48-day period where he's uh, unrestrained, unconstrained, and um, throwing a massive temper tantrum, the guy with the nuclear codes having a big big hissy fit. Um, But first, as always, I'm joined by Liz Preza, Alternate's Managing Editor. Hi, Liz. How are you? Good. I like the implication that Trump was ever restrained in your intro. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Well, we talked about how he's always like, you know, he's fully unconstrained now. Yeah, yeah. Now now that X has happened, you know, now that he's fired his advisors and been acquitted in the impeachment trial, no holds barred. It's all Trump going crazy. But he is going crazy. I mean, you know, this is the 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 reality of um, we've we've also talked about this before. Narcissistic trauma, narcissistic injury, right? I mean, it is his pathology, uh, consistent with his pathology, that losing is extremely um, is is unsettling to him and uh, creates a lot of um, cognitive dissonance, which is especially painful for these people who need to have a reflected glory at all times. So yeah. he, he is melting down. I mean, yeah. he's, he's certainly. It's been be- four years in the making, but it is definitely happening. Well, let's put it this way. There was the time that he just recently broke this where he was quiet for two and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. That's untrump like, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, he was brooding and perhaps crying. <laughs> I, I I would like to think he was crying. Yeah. I'm not sure. I can't report that he was crying. <laughs> but many people are saying. People are saying he was crying. <laughs> Big men were crying and telling me he was crying. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's uh, certainly, um, I mean, it's been a crazy time in the Trump circle. Um, ABC reported today that Barr, Bill Barr, uh, had an, a quote-unquote intense meeting with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, Kaylee McEnany refused to affirm that, uh, well, actually, I think it was Trump was asked directly whether he had confidence in Barr. And he rambled on about how Barr wasn't investigating the very stupid crackpotty conspiracy theories. Uh, Barr kind of shivved him in the back last week by saying that the Department of Justice had not uncovered any evidence of, of significant fraud. So, I mean, is Barr going to get fired? I don't know. It'd be nice to see Barr humiliated, um, which is, you know, part of it's like the end stage of working for Trump. Yeah. You know, it always ends in humiliation. But on the other hand, if he were to replace Barr with um, someone even more crackpotty, perhaps. Are there? <laughs> Are there people? Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> right. No, Trump was asked directly today about it and he said, give me uh, to ask that question again in a couple of weeks, I think was the quote that he gave. Yes. He he said, ask that question again in a couple Love of weeks. Love it when he teases, teases the next episode for us. Yeah. Well, you know, he's a showman. He knows how to, <laughs> he knows how to do TV. Um, and um he he was spe- he was specifically like and they're not investigating all of this massive fraud that we've seen in these hearings mm-hmm. in you know 
in Michigan and Wisconsin. And these hearings have been just a complete joke. You've had these absolute crackpots getting up there. A lot of them have no connection to the election directly. Like there was a guy um, yesterday, he got up and he testified. Was it was it Michigan yesterday that they were doing yeah, this? So the, the hearings in the Michigan uh, legislator, legislate, legislature. And he got up and he, he was like, yeah, I wasn't actually at the um, vote counting center and right. I have no direct, but I have a podcast. And let me tell you about my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we should have done that. <laughs> I, I was thinking, damn, that was like, I smart. Why don't we do that? We're oh, bad man. at self-promotion, man. We should do that stuff. Yeah, no, they're they're crazy. Those hearings are crazy. There's like people that look like they're drunk. There's people that are like ranting, um, and then you you watch like the actual legislate legislators being like, okay, let's let's try to actually keep this like, <laughs> <laughs> literate. <laughs> I mean, you built that, guys. Like this is they the they are seeing Frankenstein's monster, yeah. right? They are Doctor Frankenstein. They're like, holy shit, what have we unleashed here? The um, one of the guys who was being berated in that hearing is arguably the most right wing pro Trump guy in the entire Michigan legislature. And they were like, you substituted the they were accusing him of basically stealing the election for yeah. Joe Biden. And he was like, what is happening? Here? <laughs> How did this go so far off the rails? And then yeah. you've got this huge war going on now over Georgia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are they actually going to vote? Are the are Republicans actually going to come out and vote in Georgia? Uh, so for those who missed it, there was this uh, multiple crazy members of not Trump's direct legal team. but Sydney the, Powell, right? Sydney Powell, who was part of the legal team until she accused the Georgia governor of working with Hugo Chavez, <laughs> is zombie Hugo Chavez, to steal the election for Joe Biden. And that was, and people were like, wait a second. You know, Republicans were like, wait a second. You, you're supposed to go after Democrats with this bullshit, not the governor of Georgia. <laughs> right in the weeks before a, um, a crucial runoff for those two Senate runoff Senate right. seats, right. Which could control, which could uh, sh- determine control of the chamber. So she, a few weeks ago, last week, I don't know when it was, she said, um, you know, you sh- should not vote in that. You should not participate. I think it was actually earlier this week. Yeah. She said that uh, they shouldn't participate until it can be proven that the voting system is secure. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's, you know, her whole thing is to undermine whether or not the voting system is secure. So then Lynn Wood in the other one, he said the same thing, right? He said he I think he tweeted, you know, that that um, they Georgians should not participate until, I don't know, Kelly Loeffler or uh, Purdue, the two Republican candidates um, endorsed their crazy conspiracy theories right and lynn wood is now being exoriated by half of the conservative media so breitbart put out a piece today um noting that wood lynn wood again this crazy right-wing conspiracy theorist attorney had um donated to democrats he was basically so let's see what what it says um 
Record Linwood has for decades voted for, donated to Democrats, including Barack Obama, and David Perdue's 2014 opponent was the headline of a Breitbart article. Mm-hmm. So then um, the dumbest guy on the internet, Jim Hoft, <laughs> right? He goes after Breitbart and he's like, what are you doing? Lynn Wood is trying to save America from the uh, Venezuelan zombie communists. Oh, you love to see it. <laughs> it it's insane. It's just, it's insane. It, was a, it was really a banner week in right-wing insanity. Yeah. Meanwhile, the only like actual uh, real voter fraud that I've seen was this guy in Florida, this lawyer in Florida. Did you catch this video? Encouraging people to do what he did and move to Georgia for two months to vote in the Senate runoff elections. But he didn't even move to Georgia. He just claimed, he just registered in Georgia. Yeah, I did see that. And um so he's he then so then he he said this to a large audience, right? He was like, "Yeah, we're we should all just register in Georgia." And, and he offered up his his like set his uh, sister in law's address for them to register at. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> or his brother's address in Hiram, Georgia. Yes, that's it. He, he said he's, this was in a Facebook video. He said, "If that we absolutely have to hold the Senate, we have to start fighting back." And if that means changing your address for the next two months, so be it. I'm doing that. I'm moving to Georgia. I'm going to fight, and I want you all to fight with me. And then he said, um, "He's moving." He's he said, um, "You know, you can all register at my brother's address." <laughs> so then the, this reporter is like, "Wait a second. Hey, they they reach Price, but this guy Price by by uh, phone or something up, and he said, "I did not change my re- voter registration, and it was a joke." He said Ugh. it was a humor. But then the reporter followed up, and guess what? He had changed his registration the very following day. Outrageous. So he actually did. Now, this isn't the only case of voter fraud because you've had two cases in Pennsylvania where Republican Trump supporters tried to vote for, I think one was a dead mother, mm-hmm. and the other was for a son. Oh, they tried to vote for relatives. And this is exactly what we saw in 2016, the same pattern, which is that there are a dozen cases of real Mm -hmm. voter fraud every year. There's like a dozen cases. And um, in 2016, they were almost all Republican Trump supporters who believed the bullshit that Democrats were committing widespread fraud. They believed that voter fraud was easy and easy to get away with. Because that's what they were told on Fox and by Donald Trump. And they thought that they were fighting fire with fire. And so they went and they they committed voter fraud. And the thing is that unless you're steeped in that narrative about voter fraud, it's very stupid to do. I mean, it makes no sense to try to commit in-person voter fraud because the potential payoff is what? You add a vote to, right. the, to the tally. Or maybe if you're very industrious, you manage to vote three or four times, whatever. But the potential penalty is jail. Right. right. So it no, makes I, no sense. I actually did see a lot of, uh, of right-wingers tweeting out a story of a woman who worked in a, a nursing home or a long-term care facility who had filled out um, applications for absentee voting for people who were incapacitated and got arrested. And she's in jail now. 
And yep. they were tweeting this out as evidence of widespread voter fraud, as opposed to evidence that the system worked because yes. she, they, with, they, they never got the ballots. She didn't get to cast a vote for anybody. She got caught. And yeah, they all jail. get caught. They all get caught. They all get caught. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, I mean, maybe some don't get caught. Well, sure. you know, if, you know, if a dozen cases come, they're all clumsy and it seems like they're, it's obvious. Look, the, the way to steal an election is through uh, election fraud mm-hmm. and by voter suppression. And a lot, most of those, most of those things are legal. Not all of them, but most of those things are legal. And that's yeah. the way to do it. I mean, 150 million people voted in this election. Like some, it's, it's going to come out that some people committed voter fraud and those sure. people are caught and prosecuted. And it's just, it's so funny when people try to use that as, evidence that the system is rigged as opposed to evidence that the system is working the way that it should. Yeah. Yeah. And do we know, um, who she was, who she was? No, no. Cause she never, right? she never actually got to cast the ballots. Yeah. She applied for ballots for people who were mentally incapacitated and they were like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, it's, it's very likely again, that she was, um, trying to fight back against voters, uh, voter fraud from the left, which is yeah. they, they all believe in this. So they um, they do what they can. Meanwhile, um, we have people, you know, the other side of the coin is just stop the election and and uh, impose martial law like Mike Flynn is at urging President Trump to do. And uh, Ohio Tea Party leader is like uh, had posted a uh, taken out a page, a full page ad in The Washington Times Tom Zawatowski, try to say that name five times fast. So I got a pay who's a member of the We the People Convention and also a member of a Ohio Tea Party group. Yeah, he's a veteran Tea Party organizer. Mm-hmm. And he's calling for martial law. He's calling for Trump to overthrow the Constitution. He's calling, he's warning of a civil war if Trump doesn't do this. Just totally, totally batshit stuff. And Mike Flynn, who of course Trump pardoned is boosting these messages and it's just like who are these people i mean mike flynn was a general (laughs) it's terrifying it's terrifying there there are a significant number of wingnuts who believe that there was a firefight in germany Mm -hmm. between u.s troops and members of the cia over uh, U.S. troops were trying to seize a Dominion server in Germany. This wackadoodle story. Troops were killed. Somehow, none of this made the news. Nobody in Germany heard the firefight. There's no, there's no real reason why this Dominion server was supposed to be injured. Just a crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah. And I was tweeting about that, and then someone was like, "By the way, this comes from a retired three-star general." Oh man. Who um, went, uh, he was, for a while, he was, um, so he retired maybe 15 years ago, I don't know exactly when, but he was a Fox News commentator for a while, and then he went, and then he went QAnon. Yeah. And um, this is what happens. It's very weird to see the people who were kind of normal and part of the establishment, but were wingnuts, now being completely unleashed by, you know, the the new... Um, Alex Jonesified Republican Party, where mm-hmm. they're just like, woo, way out there. I mean, remember that um, Sidney Powell used to be a respected lawyer. Yeah. 
Like, what the fuck happened to that lady? Yeah. I, I think it's telling, too, like, what this Zawatowski's whatever, his, his page ad said. It said, we wanted to express our concerns to the president, to the legislators, courts, and Congress that we, the people, will not cede our exclusive constitutional right to elect our representatives to judges, courts, lawyers, governors, secretary of states, Congress, who, of course, are all the people they're appealing to, to overturn the will of the voters. Yeah. And it's just so clear that there was no outcome where Trump could have lost, where they would have accepted that as reality. Well, look, I mean, the the view from within the conservative bubble has long been, and I think we talked about this like in October or something like that. They were constantly told that the polls were wrong, mm-hmm. which they were, but not as wrong as they, they basically they were told conservatives were told those who consumed the right wing media were told that the boat parades, the truck parades, these things were the true, measure of enthusiasm and that they all augured not a tight narrow trump win but a trump blowout Mm -hmm. and so for months they've been told yeah you know that trump is going to win and it's not even going to be close Mm -hmm. it's going to be you know 400 electoral college votes i mean there was you know a bunch of bunch of a bunch of conservatives on Twitter were widely mocked for posting these maps and being like, I bet you New York is going to turn red <laughs> and stuff like that. But they were, they were completely shocked. I mean, if you were in this right wing bubble, I mean, this was a kick in the ass. Like yeah. what the fuck is going on? We, we expected that we were going to win. And um, you know, the, we, we, the media loves the idea of liberals in their coastal bubbles and they don't understand the American heartland and blah, blah, blah. And yet, if you want to look at who's stuck in a bubble and doesn't get out and talk to real Americans, right. Right. No, it I is these that. conservatives who are like, wait a second, you mean people didn't like Donald Trump? Yeah, I know. I like, know. I don't I don't know anybody who didn't like Donald Trump, so it must all be a... Giant. I live in a conservative town like that, I'm, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, everybody looks the same, and everybody thinks the same, and they can't even imagine what somebody in a metro, major metropolitan area would be thinking. And it's like, yeah. you've, have you ever... Like, when was the last time you spoke to an immigrant? Yeah, yeah, or a liberal. <laughs> I mean, their, their ideas of what liberals are based on, you know... Fox and Breitbart, and they're just completely, yeah. um, you know, and I, and I just think, bubble. I think, you know, their, their argument too is, is so funny. Can't, can you really believe that Joe Biden got that number of votes? Well, I can really believe that that number of people hate the fuck out of Donald Trump. I believe that wholeheartedly. 100%. Yeah, I mean, that is really one of the dumbest talking points that I've encountered in a really long time because the, inverse of that question is how can anyone not believe that more people would be motivated to vote against Donald Trump than Mitt fucking Romney <laughs> who is just milk toast corporate you know like pro immigration corporate right traditional boring republican of course and then the other problem with that whole that cuz they're they're obsessed with 80 million votes right right, right. The fucking vo- eligible voter population has increased by 17 million since 2012. Mm, I didn't know it was that much. Yeah, 17 million more eligible voters. So, yes, turnout was high. 
You have 17 more million more people who are eligible to vote than uh, eight years before. Obviously, obviously, mm-hmm. he's going to get more votes. They should have stuck with turnout and said, like, how could you know? How could there be such turnout? High rate of turnout, but mm-hmm. they're obsessed with this 80 million. It's just <laughs> it's so fucking stupid. It's it's frightening. It's stupid. Yeah. Anyway. Let's um, take a break and then we'll we'll take a break from stupid by talking <laughs> to Jeff Hauser. Um, stay tuned. We'll take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm very happy to be joined by Jeff Hauser. Jeff is the director of the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Uh, I know you were on our old show, but this is your first time, I think, on this new one. Um, I wanted to have Jeff on because we're in that that time of year when we're watching cabinet picks and you have a, a new president-elect a lot more a lot more signal uh noise than signal around some of these picks and i wanted to have jeff in because he's been advocating that we pay attention close attention to personnel picks throughout the obama years um when uh, i think a lot of people sat back and did not jeff do you think there's more attention to the things that you've been telling us we need to pay attention to than there were during the the last uh, white house uh, absolutely. I think that people understand that the executive branch is important uh, in all matters. It's actually pretty important in legislation if you think about uh, determining what the Democratic Party's negotiating posture will be. People on the National Economic Council or at the Office of Management and Budget and Treasury will help determine the domestic legislative priorities. Uh, but more than just legislation, I think people think of Washington, D.C. as a place where legislation happens or doesn't happen. And that's certainly true. But the executive branch is really important at all times, regardless. Uh, The country is 230 years old under this constitutional system. There are a lot of laws that are on the books that are very much legal, valid and important uh, to enforce or and when they're not enforced, it's really problematic. So be it the Sherman Antitrust Act in the 19th century, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, or Dodd-Frank and the ACA uh, under Obama. These older laws are still on the books and how the executive branch interprets them is really critical to how the country functions or doesn't function. That's such an important point. We talk about the constraints of having either a 50-50 Senate, that's the best case scenario, um, with Joe Manchin of West Virginia being maybe the the deciding vote of even, even with, even if you don't factor in the filibuster, um, but there are all of these authorities already on the books, all of these statutes out there, 
and the executive branch's interpretation of them and the people that they put in these agencies has an enormous amount of impact on uh, outcomes. Let's talk about a few of the people who, these early picks, obviously there are many to go. Um, Ron Klain is the chief of staff. This is This was a pick that I was kind of surprised in that um, it's very rare that someone does not piss off anybody. That, that It seemed to me that there was... A, a certain amount of um, celebration of the pick of Klain from people on the left and from the people in the center and everybody in between. Why is that? Uh, Ron Klain has spent years, both publicly and privately, signaling that he is aware of the evolution of the Democratic Party on a whole wide range of issues. He has signaled that he understands the uh, party and the country have moved to the left on some critical issues of economic power. That's one thing. The second thing is he actually knows how to run an open process and to make the government work well. So that's both about taking uh, a wide array of ideological inputs into consideration, but it's also uh, understanding the nuts and bolts of governance, which he obviously demonstrated on the Ebola crisis that he managed, but he has signaled in a lot of other regards as well. And finally, this is somebody who was on the front lines in Florida in 2000 and was disappointed in how the Democratic Party did not fight harder so that the real winner of the 2000 election became president. He worked for Gore on the recount. He ended up being overridden on a lot of issues, but he was on the front lines and seeing the extremes to which the Republican Party is willing to go. And I think Ron Klain understands the modern Republican Party in a way that, like, I don't always know that Joe Biden does himself. And so having as many people who have a clear eyes and a strong vision about the reality of the modern Republican Party surrounding Joe Biden as possible is really important for those of us who think that the Republican Party, uh, as it is currently led by people like Mitch McConnell, is not to be trusted. Yeah. Um, now, the there's another pick that has obviously gotten a lot of attention, Neera Tandon, formerly the head of the Center for American Progress. Um, Senator Tom Cotton says that Tandon has no chance of being confirmed. This is uh, she's she's Biden's pick for the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, they call her a radical liberal. At the same time, she's getting fire from the left because she's engaged in all sorts of kind of um, Twitter food fights with various prominent leftists, your take on the, the Tandon. Well, let me ask you first, should should Biden follow uh, Trump's lead and, and um, insist on putting people in as acting secretaries of this and that if, the, if he runs into resistance in the Senate? Shouldn't he have the right to name his crew as long as they're somewhat within the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, That's a very important issue. That's something that we have been, along with our allies at Demand Progress, very vocal on ever since the election, that uh, Mitch McConnell is not co-president. He doesn't get to choose Joe Biden's team. Uh, I mean, Mitch McConnell has not even acknowledged Biden's victory in the most direct and clear way. And so I think in terms of advice and consent and the constitutional process, uh, it's going to take there's two options. There's a good faith process by both the president and the Senate that is optimal. That would mean the Senate uh, asks real questions about qualifications of presidential nominees. The president take advice and offer up names. There'd be a real process and a real up or down vote that is on the merits of the qualifications. 
if Mitch McConnell signals that he is going to exert an ideological veto on otherwise qualified Biden nominees, I think Biden is, that's a, not an, a constitutionally preferable uh, outcome. That's a hardball strategy. And I think Biden should retaliate in kind, acting legally, lawfully, uh, but with, with a real punch to the sort of administrative hardball is what we're terming it, the various plan Bs available to a president, be it the uh, strong use of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, um, which Trump has made unprecedented use of despite having a Republican Senate. That's right. Um, and uh, and if there's also the adjournment power of the president, where the president and the House can combine forcibly adjourn Congress uh, for a sufficiently long recess to allow the president to make a recess appointment. That's not the optimal way to run a, a, a Navy. But if that's the way we're going to have to run the country because of Mitch McConnell, it's something that Biden needs to be willing to do. He cannot allow his ambitions to be limited from the outset by somebody who acts in as much bad faith as Mitch McConnell. And then on Tendon herself, I mean, I think Tendon's uh, obviously a complicated figure, and I don't want to adjudicate each and every Twitter battle she's had or question at Center for American Progress. But what I do know is that Neera Tendon sees herself as a progressive. I think she is clear-eyed about austerity, about Republican hypocrisy on the deficit. And as a leader of the Office of Management and Budget, she would probably be the most progressive person to hold that job in my lifetime. And so I don't think people have to, in order to support a uh, nomination, uh, nominate somebody for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, I think they should just look like, generally speaking, is this a progressive who is clear-eyed about the challenges facing the Biden administration, and I think Tandon very easily clears that threshold, uh, and not by a small amount. You know, I think that, you know, I, I agree with that. And I think that the most important qualification for somebody at OMB is that they are a, you can say a deficit dove, right? That they have an understanding of a progressive viewpoint on the, on, on taxing and spending rather than you know, being a um, someone who is culturally in t- attuned to the uh, the progressive movement or to the younger leftists with whom he she has battled. The other thing that I I just point out about Nira, and I know a bunch of people who used to work at CAP, and they have um, legitimate problems with various incidents that happened over the years uh, under her leadership at CAP. But a lot of the conflict with with Tandon. Is um, are these Twitter kerfuffles that are entirely personal, and um, you know the, the the twelve of us who actually read the Podesta leaks, um, you know, during the Clinton campaign in 2016, it was generally the case that Tandon was on the case on the side of uh, moving Clinton to a more progressive position on policy. And if you actually read those emails, you see those that come out in those exchanges. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the economic team. Um, Janet Yellen and who else are we, are we thinking about here? Are the, the key, who are the key um, economic picks so far? I know we have Heather Boucher, who's an old friend of mine, Jared Bernstein, who is a, a strong advocate of, Full employment, big labor guy. Who else? Who else are you looking at? Sure. I mean, I think the key uh, 
five known picks at this moment are Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary, Brian Deese as Director of the National Economic Council, and then Cecilia Roos, uh, Jared Bernstein, and Heather Boucher at the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Treasury has all sorts of power, and uh, Janet Yellen is both the most progressive Treasury Secretary I am aware of in American history, or will be once she is confirmed. Um, but <laughs> she manages to be that progressive and have no one who has these interpersonal beefs. Uh, so I think she is someone to celebrate, even as you can definitely cherry pick her record, as you can with almost anyone who has been around in democratic politics for many decades and find some statements and uh, policies that are not optimal. But I think she came into politics and came into economics in the 1970s as a progressive when that field economics was moving to the right. She has moved to the left along with uh, the economics profession. She is a fact-based, dedicated civil servant. I am very excited that Janet Yellen is Treasury Secretary or will be very shortly. The Council of Economic Advisors team, all three um, economists there are excellent and good news. Um, not only the Council of Economic Advisors has in recent Democratic administrations been a little bit more progressive than the rest of the team, uh, including Janet Yellen in the 1990s under Bill Clinton uh, when she ran it. But I think this team is not only progressive, but they actually understand government. Um, I mean, that was at the beginning of Janet Yellen's time in government. Um, these people, all three of them, are veterans of government, Washington, and politics. And I think they will have more influence and won't get rolled in the same way that we saw Christy Romer get rolled by uh, Larry Summers um, in 2009. Uh, Larry Summers had the job of National Economic Council Director. That's the last of the jobs I'm talking about now. We have had some concerns about Brian Deese because he has spent nearly four years at BlackRock, which is this the world's largest asset manager. It's a financial services conglomerate that has a problematic record from the perspective of financial regulation. It is very opposed to it. Um, antitrust, it is kind of a monopoly or at least has monopolistic power. Uh, and on the environment where, in fact, Deese was sort of hired to be a bit of a human shield. Uh, so those are our concerns. But I will acknowledge that there are other progressives who I respect, uh, most notably Bill McKibben, and certainly not limited to him, who have a high, better take on D, a more positive take on Deese based off of their dealings with him during the Obama years. And so I think Deese, to my perspective, is a disappointment, like a very clear one. But I have to acknowledge not everyone agrees. And I think he is at least he's a disappointment who sees himself as a progressive and who had to make a lot of promises and commitments to progressives in order to be deemed acceptable enough to get this position. So it's a much stronger position for us to have somebody like Deese, who is answerable to progressives in the job, very critical job of National Economic Council director than it was Larry Summers in 2009 whose disdain for progressives could not possibly be more evident. Yeah, um, you know, Bill McKibben, as you mentioned about Brian Deese, he had a long thread on Twitter. Um, he he actually, it was a, they, they go back, f way, way back. Um, McKibben, I, I don't remember, was, I read it the other day. So McKibben married Deese's sister or something like that. Not not married, but presided over the marriage. And anyway, they go back like 
20 years, um, and he he swears that his work at BlackRock was, um, you know, disappointing, but he was in, McKibben was involved in a project that aimed at BlackRock, and he talked to Deese about it. Anyway, these things are a little complicated. We, we tend to have these uh, simplified takes on various individuals who have long careers. A great example of that is Biden stirred up some, um, certainly some Twitter, a Twitter kerfuffle um, when she named when he named uh, Dana Remus for the job as White House counsel. Remus had clerked for Sam Alito. So everybody was like, oh, she must be a hardcore right winger. But she was also the um, the general counsel of the Obama Foundation. She was a deputy assistant to Obama. Um, she was a deputy counsel for ethics in the Obama White House. So she had this long career. She started out, you know, clerking for Alito. And maybe it's not a bad thing to uh, have somebody in that position counseling the president who is familiar with Alito's particular takes on various legal controversies. You recently argued that Biden should not try to be overly defensive when it comes to a 6-3 right-wing Supreme Court majority, including five very hardcore conservatives who are less concerned with the uh, legitimacy of the institution than John Roberts has uh, always allegedly been. You say he should not, you know, be, be willing to take some losses at the Supreme Court, go big and and have them push back. Uh, why is that, Jeff? Well, I mean, to some extent, it's a win-win um, situation in which if you do something in good faith, and that's obviously the premise here, I'm not advocating for um, uh, anyone. Banning the Second Amendment. Yeah. Um, we like, But within the realm of what uh, progressives in good faith would think is legal, they should go big because the only way you're going to prove that we need to unpack the court that has been so carefully packed by Mitch McConnell over several decades is by losing on some cases where the majority is just out of whack. And that's unfortunately what ended up being necessary under FDR. I mean, the switch in time to save nine uh, court packing is a complicated period. Uh, I've read multiple books about what occurred in 1937. But the basic lesson is progressives should do their best. Eventually, they will start winning over people, and to the extent to which they don't, they will create uh, the record and the uh, broad understanding as to why they might need to unpack the court that has been so illegitimately packed by uh, principally Mitch McConnell. I think you know he's the puppet master, even when some of the actions have been undertaken by Donald Trump. Mitch yes. McConnell has packed the court. We're going to eventually have to unpack it. And in the meantime... I just don't think a loss because of Amy Coney Barrett's vote is something that we should be deem as, oh, my God, we need to guess how she's going to vote. We, we really shouldn't care. I just don't think she or uh, Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh are legitimate members of this Supreme Court, and we should not act accordingly. I mean, I think if you like John Roberts is a closer call, and I think taking his views into account, but I definitely don't think a 5-4 loss is something to be um, averted. I think the administration should do what it needs to do. Uh, and honestly, I think there's going to be only limited appetite by the court, even the worst members, to 
smack down everything. And so the more that they uh, lose, uh, they may actually open up themselves for more wins as well. So go big. Yeah, go big. There's, I mean, the thing is that when you go big, you activate the other side's base and, you know, we're going to come up on a tough midterms, but uh, that happens regardless of the specifics of your policies. Uh, that's certainly the way it seems these days. So you might as well go big and try to deliver for your base to the degree that you can. Um, let me ask you this, Jeff. You've talked a lot about learned helplessness over the years. Uh, it's an affliction that the Democratic Party has. What do, what do you mean by learned helplessness? And are you seeing any improvements on that front, perhaps because of your proselytizing for the last 10 years and, and yelling at people? Um, I think that um, House Democrats remain completely uh, reflective of the learned helplessness phenomenon, which to my mind is basically the view that anything a Democrat might do carries a greater risk of backfiring than of succeeding. And so that at all times, the wise voice counsels patience and passivity and allow the other side to lose. Um, Self-impeachment is a term that kind of encapsulates the approach. Um, But I think the phenomenon right now in which um, it has been Pelosi's plan to have, just as she did in October and November, a clean spending bill. So basically, the fiscal year of the government runs and, uh, beginning of October to end of September. And so at the end of September this past year, uh, it, uh, Pelosi signed a clean CR until December 11th. That meant continuing spending levels from before and attaching nothing to rein in potential misbehavior by President Trump, last minute regulations, last minute pardons, last minute corrupt contracts. Um, all sorts of corruption, no effort to mitigate that, no effort to buttress the Postal Service or Election Administration. That runs out in eight days. And the need to rein in uh, crazy behavior by Trump should be evident to all. But Pelosi is seeking a clean bill to uh, determine government policy from December 12th through September 30th of next year. And obviously, you could negotiate a better spending deal if the Democrats win in Georgia. And you would think it would be in the interest of the Democratic Party to both, A, limit Trump's options in his lame duck period, and B, give us the maximal opportunity to make things better for people if we take the Georgia Senate races and Mitch McConnell is no longer the Senate uh, majority leader. Because yes, we'll have a Senate where Manchin and Cinema and others are the decisive votes, and it won't be a lefty Senate by any extent. Sure, sure. A spending bill is a must-pass vehicle. Must-pass vehicles are very useful to a president who is looking to rebuild a broken executive branch. We think that we need as many must-pass spending vehicles available once Biden is president, especially if Democrats take the Senate, but even if he does not. And Pelosi just wants to make these issues go away so she can do symbolic acts like tearing up Trump's speeches rather than doing the hard work of oversight and governance. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I, I almost thought that we had an optimistic segment going on here, Jeff. I, I have to tell you, I was I was pretty pleased about that because we don't have a lot of those in in these days. It's everything's pretty shitty, but um, yeah. Now that we've gone down, let me ask you this: Your colleague Yevgeny Shrego has a piece in the American Prospect um, out today, I believe. Yes, today. Yeah. Uh, how Democrats can stop Trump's sam- transition sabotage. Um, Jeff, make the case, please, specifically, what do you think the Democrats should be doing um, with this spending bill in addition to having it expire sometime in, say, January after the inauguration or early February? Sure. Um, yeah. So Yevgeny's argument is that if you look at um, what the early indications about Trump's effort to further break the executive branch, they are really bad. And these are things that we need Congress to address. One of them is corrupt contracting. There's this effort to offer the 5G telecom contract to this company, Rivada, which basically has just bought a lot of Republican donors and politicians, and for all we know, will have contributed to some Cayman account that is payable out to the uh, Trump family at some point in the future. Then there's this Schedule F, which is incredibly worrisome. It's an attack by um, Donald Trump on civil servants, the idea of nonpartisan professionals serving us, the American taxpayer. Um, he wants to convert a large swath of career civil servants and make them essentially political appointees after the fact so that he can fire them right before he leaves office kicking and screaming on January 20th and potentially replace them with uh, Trump political appointees in a way that would be difficult for a president and messy for President Biden to undo. So you'd have good experts, think Anthony Fauci-like people, um, thrown out on the streets on January 19th and potentially replaced by Mark Caputo and other type figures, the political hacks who've been undermining the CDC. It is horrible. It is something that uh, Pelosi can stop in the, the spending bill that will be passed to fund the government after December 11th. And there are people in the House Democratic Caucus asking her to step up. And as of now, she is not listening to them. Jerry Connolly has been among the key leaders, but there are many um, Democrats who, who understand this issue. Unfortunately, none of them are in leadership. Jeff, um, I, I believe we're about out of time. Can we have you back in, say, a couple of months to follow up on these issues? I, I think this is the thing that we need to um, keep the closest eye on over the next few years is, is this kind of gra- in, the, in the weeds detail. Uh, it would be my pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thanks. I'd also like to thank Liz Preza and David Edwards, our producer and engineer, um, I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternate for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H O L. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I'd, of course, like to thank all of you good folks for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Mm-hmm.